spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. The La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark La Crosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune, featuring the seedier side of La Crosse, Wisconsin's history. These true stories are reflections of their time and place in history. The intent is not to diminish the human suffering that may have resulted from these events, but to bring light to ways in which people in the past experienced life. The city of La Crosse and the locations where these stories took place occupy part of a vast network of the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk, and we thank our Ho-Chunk community members and their ancestors for their stewardship of this area's land and history. My name is Henry Greengrass, and I've lived in La Crosse area for 13 years. I am a direct descendant of Naka Karamani. The correct Ho-Chunk pronunciation of his name is Naga Karamani. Naga Wanahita was a peace chief of the Ho-Chunk in the 1700s and early 1800s. He lived in Ho-Chunk Day, or Lake Winnebago as you may know it, which is near today's Nina Techita area in east-central Wisconsin. He is described to be a tall, imposing figure and a warrior by profession. Naga Wanahite respected his own appearance and often wore a headdress, earrings, and facial paint. He is known to me as one of my chokas or grandfathers. As peace chief, Naga Wanahita would visit the many Ho-Chunk bands scattered across our homelands. During the War of 1812, Naga Wanahita sided with the American troops and provided warriors to fight alongside the Americans against the British. He did this despite other Ho-Chunk bands who were pro-British. While this fractured the Ho-Chunk, Naga Wanahita continued his role as peace chief among the bands. Colonizers misunderstood the Ho-Chunk people's form of governance and wrote in their correspondence that the Ho-Chunk bands were disorganized and weak. But in reality, Naga Wanahita kept the bands in unity. Even figures like Michigan Territory Governor Louis Cass, whom La Crosse's Cass Street is named for, underestimated the strength of the Ho-Chunk people at this time. Other invaders, like Henry Dodge and Jess Scholl, believed the Ho-Chunk to have weak leadership, which led them to illegally mine in the Ho-Chunk-led region, modern-day Lafayette County in southwest Wisconsin. This led to the amount of illegal squatters invading Ho-Chunk land to increase dramatically in the 1820s. Thousands of lead miners, now often symbolized and celebrated as Wisconsin Badgers, invaded Ho-Chunk lead mines near what is now Mineral Point in Shellsburg, Wisconsin. And these invaders brought with them squatters who looked to build communities and work our land. Farmers, tavern owners, bankers, cooks, politicians, and brewers. While most historical narratives written by historians focus on the violence started by indigenous peoples, there is primary source evidence from that time that shows us that these invaders were dangerous to Ho-Chunk. One letter from Indian agent Thomas Forsyth to Superintendent of U.S. Indian Affairs William Clark shows us that Forsyth noticed the ways in which the invaders attacked and harmed Ho-Chunk people, squatted on Ho-Chunk land, and stole valuable minerals. He wrote, I had a very long conversation with the Winnebago prophet, and he reported to me that sometimes some of the white people are insulting to the Indians and take liberties with their women, which the Indians do not like. 
that early last spring, a white man came and settled on Rocky River on Indian lands, built a flat for the purpose of keeping a ferry, that the Indians told him to go away, and he went off accordingly. After the conversation ceased, the prophet inquired of me, who give the white people permission to dig mineral on their lands east of the Pecatonic River? I answered him by saying that I understood that some of the Winnebago chiefs had leased a place to a white chief, whom I believe to be General Dodge, and perhaps he is the person who is digging minerals at the place you mean. The prophet said there were hundreds of white people digging mineral at the place above mentioned, and requested me to write to you on this subject, and to acquaint with your answer when he again visits this place. Forsyth's words tell us that invaders were not only violating treaty lines, but also illegally mining, raping our women, and murdering our men with no repercussions. Thomas Forsyth even tried to hold back some of the dangerous lead miners, but because they were here before a treaty was signed with the U.S. government and the Ho-Chunk people, there were no formal protections in place against these invaders. In order to protect themselves, these lead miners formed a militia, and in charge of the militia was Henry Dodge, who you may know as Wisconsin's first governor. This militia was also meant to establish their dominance within the Ho-Chunk lead mining region. In Ho-Chunk history, Dodge is remembered as a warlord who savagely killed innocent Ho-Chunk. Some advocated that a treaty needed to be signed between tribal leaders and the U.S. government before miners like Dodge could continue their advancement on the land. But Dodge boldly refused to leave the land he squatted on. With his militia of miners backing him, he dared officials to force him from the area. In this way, Dodge's refusal to leave set a precedent that showed the other squatters they could continue digging lead and other valuable minerals despite no treaty having been signed with the U.S. In the summer of 1827, the injustices of the squatters and their violence hit a boiling point when a Ho-Chunk chief up the Nikhate, or Mississippi River, heard reports that two Ho-Chunk men who were falsely imprisoned at Fort Snelling, near today's Twin Cities, had been knowingly handed over to enemies by the U.S. Army and then murdered. The Ho-Chunk word for the area that the city of La Crosse now occupies is Hinukwas. At this time, the Hinakwas band was led by Wanang Shuch Wanahita, who you may know by the name Redbird. Wanang Shuch Wanahita was popular among his band, which in the 1820s consisted of 18 lodges and over 100 men. The Hinakwas band was known to be more cautious of the illegal invaders stealing Ho-Chunk land and resources. It was in June of 1827 when Wanik Shuch Wanahita and his band learned of the two Ho-Chunk men who were imprisoned and wrongly executed at Fort Snelling. He then heard that down the river, a group of Ho-Chunk women were abducted. Tensions were high and Wanik Shuch Wanahita chose to respond. He led a raid on a small settlement of squatters between Perdichin and Hinokwas. He and his men killed two people to retaliate for the attacks on Ho-Chunk people. Another group, separate from Wanang Shuch Wanahita, attacked U.S. cargo boats traveling down the Mississippi, killing boatmen and some soldiers. Though they were not with Wanang Shuch Wanahita, he would later be held responsible for inspiring these attacks. In 1825, the U.S. Army had cleared Fort Crawford in Perdichin of troops, but as soon as these retaliation acts from Ho-Chunk warriors were carried out, these troops came back into the area from surrounding sides to squash a Ho-Chunk uprising. Army officers demanded that Wanang Shuch Wanahita surrender. 
Today, his actions are referred to as a resistance, and sometimes this clash is referred to as the Winnebago War. This reference is a misnomer as Wanangshuch Wanahita was not sanctioned by the peace chief Naga Wanahita before he led this raid. When Naga Wanahita learned this, he requested a meeting with Wanangshuch Wanahita. As peace chief, it was his responsibility to take action when he saw potential dangers or conflicts come for the Ho-Chunk people. Naga Wanahita advised Wanangshuch Wanahita that the U.S. government would hold the entire Ho-Chunk people responsible for this unsanctioned attack and convinced him to surrender to American authorities. Wanangshuch Wanahita surrendered, admitting that his raid was not sanctioned by Ho-Chunk leadership and he would be tried solely. Wanangshuch Wanahita was sent to prison in the fall of 1827 at Fort Crawford in Prairie du Chien. And for the next few months, Ho-Chunk leadership fought for his release as his health deteriorated. In early 1828, delegates traveled as far as Washington, D.C. to negotiate peace terms. U.S. authorities agreed to free him only if Ho-Chunk leaders agreed to cede the lead mine regions and all Ho-Chunk mineral rights. However, the Ho-Chunk delegates who were in D.C. only had authority to negotiate peace, not land rights, according to Ho-Chunk governance. It's documented that these land session treaties were usually forced upon Ho-Chunk leaders with unethical tactics. Reports were made that those present during treaty discussions were threatened along with their families. Some were coerced into drinking alcohol to agree, while others were tortured and physically beaten and usually misinformed with the contents of the treaty. In 1828, the delegates were forced to agree to terms set by the U.S. officials and returned home, having successfully negotiated for Wanangshuch Wanahita's release. While what they agreed to would become the 1829 Land Session Treaty, the agreement held no legality for the Ho-Chunk people, because the delegation they sent did not have land rights authority to in accordance with Ho-Chunk governance. In the end, U.S. authorities didn't release Wanang Shuch Wanahita, and he died of dysentery in prison in February of 1828 without a trial. Yet the Ho-Chunk were made to comply with their end of the 1828 and 1829 treaty agreements regarding land and mineral rights. This treaty was just one in a string of further land sessions as more and more Ho-Chunk land was taken by white invaders. In 1830, Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, This act worked to force indigenous peoples from their ancestral lands located east of Nikate or the Mississippi River to occupied territory west of the river. In a letter to Congress, he wrote, It gives me pleasure to announce to Congress that the benevolent policy of government steadily pursued for nearly 30 years in the relation of the removal of Indians beyond the white settlements is approaching to a happy consummation. Two important tribes have accepted the provision made for their removal at the last session of Congress, and it is believed that their example will induce the remaining tribes also to seek the same obvious advantages. My Ho-Chunk ancestors had no interest in seeking removal from our homelands, and there were, of course, no obvious advantages in doing so. Andrew Jackson's tactics were much more violent and relentless than he just described. Even before his presidency, Jackson purposefully made allies with politicians like the warlord Henry Dodge and Louis Cass, who would work alongside him to further the violent invasion of our ancestral homeland. By the 1840s, the U.S. government had succeeded in forcing nearly all Native American tribal nations west. 
The Ho-Chunk were one of the few people who resisted over and over again, and today govern a sovereign nation on part of our ancestral homelands. Another time, I would like to tell you about how today's Hinukwas community still feels the lingering impacts of this violent era. This will include Nathan Myrick's involvement with the Ho-Chunk people, forced removals, land sessions, and boarding schools. And now I'd like to welcome in Jane DeRocher, archives librarian, who along with Henry Greengrass, citizen of the Ho-Chunk Nation, did the research for this story. Archival record keeping in the U.S. today stems from Western, colonized, and capitalist practices. Records are meant to track ownership of land and property, track people, memorialize events, and create legal documents to protect people's property and wealth. These are all things that were brought to what we now call the Americas when Europeans colonized the land starting in 1492. This means archival repositories largely capture history from the colonized perspective. All primary and secondary sources have biases laced in, whether they are sensationalized newspaper articles, correspondence, property deeds, or early histories written about the state of Wisconsin. Archivists have a phrase to communicate this idea. Archives are not neutral. What this phrase means is that no primary source escapes a biased author, and no archival repository has escaped a biased record keeper or archivist in its history. These biases include sexism, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, classism, among other prejudices that are steeped into our society's systems. Archives and primary source evidence are inherently political in this way, and all interpretations of history are as well, no matter the author or publisher. This is important to understand when it comes to any dark lacrosse story, but especially this story. When studying what is usually classified as early Wisconsin state history, but could also be described as the invader period or the violent colonization of Ho-Chunk land, it's important to acknowledge what primary source evidence exists for this time period is few and far between. There were no local newspapers, and there were only a few thousand invaders involved, and not all of them were literate. The people most likely to create records and have them still preserved today in archival repositories are the main political shakers at the time, like Andrew Jackson, Lewis Cass, William Clark, and Thomas Forsyth, who all had a lot on the line. And these men were actively working to eradicate Indigenous peoples from their homelands. So their side of the story should always be questioned. Yet many historians who have studied this period for the past 150 plus years have written from these perspectives as pure fact. While Jenny and I worked on the script for the story, we struggled with the secondary sources available to us. Often in books that talk about my ancestor, Naga Wanahida, his name is spelled phonetically and incorrectly. In the Ho-Chunk language, na means wood, and what makes this word a name is adding ga to the end. When we refer to someone who has passed, we add wanahida after saying the person's name. Ketamani means Skywalker. It's not a surname, but instead acts more like a title to signify the hereditary peace chief who comes from the Thunder Clan. The Ketamanis were historically the hereditary peace chiefs of the Ho-Chunk until 1845. Naga Wanahida was a Ketamani but this was not part of his name. Yet often in today's secondary sources, Naga Wanahida is referred to as Naka Karamani. This is because of how it was misunderstood by the colonizers who first interacted with him. They wrote down the name as they heard it and attached his title as his surname. And these primary sources survived and were used in researching secondary sources, 
usually by non-Ho-Chunk historians. In this way, not only is the true identity of Naga Wanahita lost and misunderstood, but the Ho-Chunk language and culture are not appropriately or accurately portrayed. We must even question the way he is physically described. Was he actually imposing, or is this just how the colonizers viewed him? Perhaps he was simply confident and carried a large presence. Perhaps the colonizers are simply projecting their own views and biases in these primary sources. Why does a negative word, with a connotation that he should be feared, have to be relayed in secondary sources? This is why indigenous oral traditions should be as revered as primary source evidence. As Jenny described, all primary sources have biases. So why is oral tradition so discredited, but a memoir isn't? White historians and archaeologists have long told indigenous peoples that our versions of history are wrong. Yet oral traditions hundreds of years old are typically more reliable and correct than primary source evidence. Another example of misconceptions in our nation's history doesn't come from historians or archival evidence, but from our own family lore. One reason I was particularly interested in this episode's topic was because, like our narrator Henry Greengrass, I too am the descendant of an important character in this story, the invaders. My great-great-great-grandparents and their extended family were some of the invaders who squatted illegally in what is today Lafayette County. My ancestors were farmers. I grew up hearing the story of how lucky I am to be here, because my ancestors escaped war in Europe, floods and famine in Canada's Red River Colony, and a treacherous journey to Wisconsin. On this journey, they even passed through Fort Snelling, where they were welcomed in to rest and regain their health during the winter of 1827, just a few short months before the Ho-Chunk men who were imprisoned and wrongfully executed at Fort Snelling. My ancestors were likely told of a bright future in the Wisconsin Territory, which was going to be a profitable location because of the rich lead minerals. By the time they made it here, later in 1827, two family members had died from the harsh journey. What didn't make it into the family lore was that my ancestors and all their friends and neighbors lived on that land illegally. No treaty had been signed between the Ho-Chunk and the U.S. government to give them permission to build a house or begin working the land and planting crops. Nor was it ever mentioned in family stories that my ancestors had involvement in the violence committed by Henry Dodge and his militia. I imagine that the men in the family, like my great-great-great-grandfather, a French army veteran, would have at least been asked to join the militia. There's just simply no way to know this. Perhaps he wasn't involved, or maybe he was, but this piece of history was left out of the family lore. And I think it's common that we want to remember our ancestors in a positive light. Regardless, the militia's violence was escalating just a few miles away from the family farm. And according to historian Stephen Kantrowitz in his 2023 book, Citizens of a Stolen Land, a Ho-Chunk History of 19th Century United States, quote, from the beginning, squatters relied on both vigilante violence and official force to establish their claim to the territory. First, the squatters threatened, beat, or murdered those who resisted them. It was fruitless to call out the army to restrain the squatters, unquote. Kantrowitz then quotes anthropologist Anthony Wallace, quote, the settlers were the militia, unquote. I think it's important to remember that perhaps my ancestors, survivors of a brutal immigration journey, may not have understood the indigenous rights to these lands that they were trying to farm, nor would they have understood why my friend Henry's ancestors attempted to protect their homelands and land rights once invaded illegally. They were part of a system being told that this land was available for taking. 
but that doesn't mean that they didn't take part in a movement to eradicate indigenous peoples. I understand that my ancestors struggled, but they still took advantage of and profited from people who were murdered around them. So while I am thankful for being alive today, I'm also capable of recognizing my family's role in this history. And I'm thankful that Henry is here, alive today, and we're able to talk about our family history and together figure out ways to share Wisconsin's history with you. Thanks for listening.